to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who rolls up and goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Unqualified. I'm your co-host, Graham Harris. I'm joined by Gerald Carter. We are here to recap two Grand Prix. Both Austin and Mexico have gone by and back-to-back as the front two races on this 3 P weekend in the Northern Hemisphere. I personally had some Tex-Mex from Chipotle to prep for this uh, earlier tonight, Gerald. Um and one quick trivia question for you before we kick off. Do you happen to know what Mexican holiday starts tomorrow? I don't. The Day of the Dead, Gerald, uh, which appropriately may also commemorate the weekend that Sergio Perez's career at Red Bull died. How poetic. Ooh, wow. What say you, my man? Good to see you. It is a, uh, it's sort of a cosmic poetry in there, isn't it? So, yeah, that had... Ouch. Yeah, that uh, that is not the way you want the home Grand Prix to go, especially on the heels of uh, or on the back half of a season like the one he has had. So um, and of course, it had to be when the the honey badger comes back and starts to deliver, too. So salt in the wound um, for for Perez this weekend. But I got to say, it's just nice to be back on the Western Hemisphere again out of countries where we have to worry about covering some sort of periphery controversy or global conflict. So, um, yeah, it was just a, a, a couple of weekends of pure and vapid sports entertainment. So thank God for that. I got to tell you, my, uh, my attendance as a viewer in races has actually been worse outside of the European circuit, which I'm not sure what that says about like my Sunday morning church attendance these days, but I seem to have more success following the races for the morning times. I'm not sure that I like the afternoon times. Competes with football, a little bit tougher to prioritize it on a nice day in the city. You're already off on your afternoon. I mean, I'm catching up, you know, because again, F1 TV pro subscriber, I've got the recording, so not worried about it. But (laughs) your man controls his own destiny. I think for me, the happy place, I actually like an 8 a.m. start. Like, Far East, for me, is, like, great as a viewer because I'm definitely going to be awake. I'm not going to be at church yet. And who is doing anything at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning? Well, and I'm two hours ahead of you, so those, like, 9 a.m. or 9.30 starts where it's, like, 7 here, oh, it's just absolutely perfect. So I totally agree with you. I I much prefer the the European catered schedule. So I love the early morning races. I feel like you said it fits perfectly in between any other sports or activities. And then now we're going to have Vegas in a couple of weeks. That kind of throws us for a whole other, whole other loop on top of that. But at least wait, wait, that, wait, wait. what do you mean? A couple of weeks? I thought it was this weekend. I think Brazil's next. Oh, is it not? Dude, I, I've totally effed the counter in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- <laughs> I, for some reason had it. Oh, never mind. Okay. To be fair. I, I totally thought, Vegas was next as well, but nope, we are off to Brazil, then Vegas, and then back to the Middle East, the UAE, to bring it home. So uh, just three races to go. Championships have long been settled, but there's a couple of open questions that remain in both the Constructors and the Drivers' Championship. So 
a little of excitement for us to to keep us tuned in. But I will say nothing has kept me more engaged in F1 than our petty like disagreement on Ricardo versus Perez versus Sonoda and Lawson. I don't think I've ever been so passionate about a race. Like I'm just fucking, I'm willing Sonoda to like close the gap, especially you're talking shit. There's like, there's no way Sonoda comes back. And I'm sitting here watching these fucking two spots back. Like do it, do it. Oh man. I'm like, I don't care about he any of it. this. He, he, sent um, it. <laughs> he sent it a couple, he sent it a couple of times. That was the, that was I... the problem. Hey man, I this is one of those weeks where I really wish I'd been watching live because I would love to have I would have loved to have been shit talking in real time as soon as he uh he bend it. Unfortunately, I was not able to, but uh yeah, I, I'd be lying if I said it didn't warm my heart. And again, it's not about Sonoda. I got nothing against him personally. It's against it's me. You, it's just you <laughs> that I dislike. So it just go, it gets taken out on him. Yeah, it yeah. Nothing no, to, it's not and it's fault. Ricardo as well. I I think Ricardo's a great person and a uh, great driver, but as soon as you signed up in his camp, uh, there was immediate hatred. So <laughs> I'm going to stick well, to that. Uh, he, he's not going to be racing Sonoda directly next year. He's going to be in a Red Bull. So I don't think you're going to have anything to worry about. Ooh, well, well, let's dive into that more in one moment. But just to recap, I mean, we could run through all the things from Austin, but who really gives a shit? Because at the end of the day, just they just throw certain drivers out and move other ones up. So, you know, you might as well not even race on the track. What is a race result anymore? You know, I like I, I just... Yeah, we'll get to the, I, it's. It's not that it was a wrong ruling. It's just like it makes the sport so arbitrary, you know. Well, and especially, I feel like the whole plank rule is is an interesting one because first, I just wish there was no limits on how low teams could run their car. Like, run it as low as you feel like you physically can, and optimize for that. And look, maybe that leads to totally even like more disparate performance between teams, but I almost wish they just like, wasn't even a thing that got measured. And then I also agree with things like Max have said of like, well, the, you know, the FIA came out and was like, well, we can't check everything, yada, yada, yada. But are there some things that you think should be checked on all cars? And to Max's point, if one driver on a team is caught doing something, should we also not be checking their, their peers' cars as well. I don't know. Any any thoughts or reactions from just the how all that played out? I mean, philosophically, I agree with them, and I think everybody does, but I think it's for the FIA, it's probably just a question of resources, right? Like, how feasible is it to jack up that many cars and check them in a reasonable time frame? And that's probably a difficult problem to solve. And um, so I, I get it, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's just like, dude, like, the penalty for lowering your car too far is hitting the fucking ground and spinning out. Like it's a pretty objective constraint that every team is beholden to. The fact that they're I'm not smart enough to know why they need a you know, uh, a different constraint, but uh it is kind of hilarious though that like the way they measure that is like the degradation of literally a piece of wood. Yeah. You know? It's, it's like, like the least complex part of the whole car. 100%. It's kind of ironic, honestly. Yeah. Well, I just feel bad for Hamilton because, I mean, honestly, I was here for him closing the gap to Perez and and moving into second place. And he had an awesome race and the car had the performance, but I guess you could say illegally so, but it uh, all feels a bit for not. So that, yeah. Well, it's for not, but I mean, like we, I think we, people talked about like, oh man, what could have been with Hamilton? He could have gained so much on Perez and Austin 
And then I left that thinking like, sure, but also there's enough races left and all he needs is Perez to DNF once and he's right back in the thick of it. And here we are. And he's 20 points back. And it's like, he's it's a one possession game, you know? Well, and so to recap Mexico, I mean, we had Leclerc on pole only to be taken really by both Red Bulls at at turn one. Verstappen successfully so. Meanwhile, Perez, home race, starting in fifth, amazing launch, only to end up back in the pits after lap one. Meanwhile, Verstappen took the lead on lap one. Hamilton climbed to um, second pretty quickly or by the end of the race while Ferrari held on to three, four. North, Norris in fifth with really the best recovery drive um, of the weekend coming from from basically last on the grid after a bad qualifying. And he also had a bad red flag restart as well. And so that kind of hampered his progress forward also, but made it through that. Russell gained a couple of spots, make, finishing in sixth. We had Ricardo holding on to seventh after starting fourth and, and kind of losing one spot right out of the gate um, to Perez and then Hamilton on the lap, I don't know, 11 or 10. Uh, but he never allowed Piastri to close the gap all race long. As fast as Lando Norris was, Piastri never quite seemed to have enough pace to, to get close and have a shot at a pass. Instead, he was left to hold off Sonoda for a fair bit of the race who had his own amazing recovery drive. Hey, easy with the word amazing there, pal. <laughs> I mean, it was a good, I mean, would you have expected Alfatari to climb up from that spot up into, you know, eighth place at that point? I certainly wouldn't have. And so it looked good. Jeez, you're just going to take any dig you can at, at Sonoda. Um, but ultimately, Piastri forced him not into just one error or two errors, but three errors uh, that basically put him out of contention. And Albon snagging another couple of points. And meanwhile, Ocon slips in at the last minute, although he called his shot about 12 laps too early. He eventually got it done and, and got his one point for, for Alpine. So with that, a couple of interesting team radios. Any, uh, any favorite team radio moments for you this weekend? Uh, unsurprisingly to you, everything that was said into Sonoda's microphone after, after it went off was pretty great for me, honestly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got. Well, I think, um, fair and Piast like perfect contrast between his team radio and Piastri's team radio. We're like, Sonoda's losing it. And Piastri just goes on about his race. He's like, yep, you turned it on me. Like carry on. <laughs> like Totally nonplussed about the whole thing. So, I mean, just another credit to Listen, Piastri. Gerald, temperament matters, you know? Temperament mm. breeds consistency in race performance, and your guy, Sonoda, doesn't have it. No two ways about it. Doesn't have it. I mean, at the end of the day, the 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 Alphataris looked super fast this weekend. So, I mean, a little unclear as to, like, where that came from because Sonoda looked good early on. His Q1, like, he nabbed a time, like, at the top of the timesheet. So, like, the car was there all weekend, but... Yeah, at the end of the day, like Sonoda was able to have a great recovery drive despite, you know, starting at the back. But but yeah, it's those little moments. And look, I, I wouldn't have been shocked if Pia or Sonoda stays back there another five, ten laps, is able to get by him. But he didn't have the patience and put himself in a bad situation. And unfortunately, you're right. That's not a characteristic of like a top a top team driver, even if they're super fast. And at least, you know, you could say Verstappen was a lot of the same way, but he showed like consistent growth and progress, not of his like race ability, but his mentality. 
and unfortunately just haven't really seen that from Sonoda as much as you would you would like. It shouldn't surprise me anymore, but it still does how fickle week by week team performance is. You know, AlphaTauri sucked all year, can rock up and find the right balance in the car and then all of a sudden be like double points potential, you know, yeah. qualifying. In like the double five. their whole season point total, basically. Yeah, it just reinforces this theory that it's just like, dude, you just can't rule anyone or any driver or any team out, really, you know, unless they're Lance Stroll. So, or Logan Sargent, uh, you can rule those guys out pretty <laughs> there's, firmly. There's a couple you can rule out. But, 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 like, we're going to get to different topics like, you know, the Russell versus Hamilton relative performance. It's just like, yeah, okay, so, like, if if you believe that Hamilton is still superior, that's going to validate your position in the last couple of races. But it's like, dude, it could swing. Like, there's no doubt about it. Like, it's just, it's so on a razor edge this year. Um, which Definitely different than previous ones. Well, and and for a bit of consistency, there was some talk during the race of, you know, well-known competitors, right? And Russell versus Norris being one of those. And so my, one of my favorite team radios had to be uh, Norris's race engineer coming over and be like, we know who this guy is. You know, it just had this very... Like you've been weighed and measured, Russell, and like you've been found wanting, kind of vibe to it, and uh, and Norris just played him like a fiddle during the oh, race dude. and had a number of like he had a couple great overtakes, great overtakes at different parts in the track in which nobody else was overtaking. So he definitely made it an exciting race. But for me, the the top, <laughs> and you'll appreciate this one, the top team radio had to be Ocon on like lap fifty four, calling his shot like some big baller. Like you tell those Haas I'm coming for him. It was another like 15 laps before he fucking finally got the pass. I was like, well, good thing we didn't tell him too quickly. <laughs> Enjoy your point. Yeah. Dick. Like at least <laughs> when Russell pats himself on the back, it's like after a pass, you know? <laughs> yeah, and he's not fighting a Haas. <laughs> like, yeah. Dude, check yourself. Oh man. So that was a, that was a fun moment. Um, but we get to the race end of race. Perez kind of just totally blew this weekend. I mean, we talked a little bit in Qatar, I believe it was, where, you know, Russell was in front of Hamilton. Hamilton had the softs behind him, ended up getting a great start. And we had this whole debate on who should have done what. And your view was, well, you know, what is Russell supposed to do? Not, Not send it, not go for it. And there was kind of some support from both Horner and... Marco after the race saying, well, yeah, of course, you know, we fully support Checo in, in kind of making that move. But like in retrospect, coming from fifth, like was that really where Checo's race was? You think he should have pulled back a little bit or and if not, like what what kind of was going through his mind at that point? Was it literally just this is my whole season in a race at this point and I want to show out for the home crowd, hometown fans as much as I can? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was cl- it was clearly it wasn't like egregious, but it was clearly overly aggressive. Um, you know, but man, Charles he Leclerc, was really far past Leclerc going into the. I mean, he was half a car ahead of Leclerc going into the corner. So, oh no, was, I mean, he it was wild. His get off his get off was huge. I mean, I don't. I, I, I'm kind of wondering if the Red Bull mechanics were putting like pine tar in the tires on the starting grid, like their get offs and Max on the restart too, man. And and that is a track where if you don't have a good get off as the lead car, you got no shot because it's such a long rundown in turn one. And yeah, I mean it was an impressive get off, but like 
he he knew that Max and and uh and Charles were 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 fighting going into that turn. And like I certainly don't think it's a bang bang play, but like for me, because of how far back he came, I don't know how you could expect the guy who was second on the grid to just back out of that turn. Um so not egregious. I think he probably and he said it in his post race, he's like, I wanted to win my home Grand Prix and he just leaned into it too far. Um the conspiracy theorist in me is like tinfoil hat. He knows he's done after this year anyway, so he's trying to get his while he's still got a seat, which is like, maybe that's it. Maybe that's why he's pressing so hard. And I, you know, if that's the case, I get why it's working against him because he's just, that's not the recipe for success. You know, you just got to keep the car on the track and drive it for how it was engineered. And he's not doing that. And, um, yeah, I just, I, he was out qualified by an Alpha Tower. You know, and do you remember the weekends that that happened to Albon when Gasly would out-qualify him and his seat and, like, how bad that looked towards the end of the year? And it's arguably worse this season because that Alpha Tower Gasly was driving was way better than the one that Ricardo was driving. And, I, dude, it just – honestly, like, I don't think – apart from, like, an egregious wreck that was, like, just a dumbass move by Checo – I don't really think you could have designed a worse scenario for his longevity in that seat. What do you mean? Like between the, the Ricardo being, performance oh, yeah. and then him not even making it out of turn one. I mean, yeah, as, as I think as bad as this race looks, like it, it's almost just more of like uh, the cherry on top. But I mean, if you look back at the whole season, it has been numerous, numerous, numerous things where it was it was trending in this direction. But this just feels like this encapsulates the whole the whole rest of the season in one race and makes it crystal clear what the path forward should be for Red Bull, even though they continue to say that he's got a seat for for next year. This after this weekend alone, that seems especially surprising. But yeah, I mean, before we get there, it, it, it there is a life lesson, I think, in in looking at kind of that Russell and Hamilton incident and then the Perez incident this weekend, which is. You know, you saw a contrast to that moment with with Norris on his restart on, after the red flag. And he's getting sandwiched between two cars and he chooses to completely back out of it, basically give up multiple spots and look at how, how his race finishes, right? And so there is just a, a huge element of self-preservation and not feeling overly anxious or aggressive just because of whatever situation you're in and sort of maintaining kind of that longer term perspective, being more measured in kind of how you're approaching it and realizing that you don't need to necessarily push so hard because that actually might be detrimental to you. And, and instead of allowing sort of things to develop around you and, and letting it come naturally to you. So a lot of maturity, I think just shown by Norris and, and like you said, this is really probably Perez's last shot to ever have a, a notable notable race in Mexico, um, in F1 and, and you know, you can't really fault him for trying to make the most of it. Cause he would have had to really slow up to like move in alongside, move in alongside sign. So again, it was another situation of like, you're almost a victim of your own really good launch and being kind of stuck in an impossible, an impossible situation there. I am going to use the arg. I'm going to use your argument against George Russell in Qatar. And I'll say, even if Checo had gotten in first out of turn one, 
He knows he's not beating Max. So, like, why is he going to sit there after the race and say, I did it because I wanted to win my home Grand Prix? Bro, you could have soared into first place before the braking zone, and you know you're not beating Max over the race distance. Like, let's not get ourselves that you were going for the win there. You were going for three laps of fame, and then you were going to be in his rearview mirror for the next 69 laps. I mean, honestly, Checo's like, best best bet was forcing the issue between Leclerc and, and Verstappen and, yeah, and hoping something happens and him there. Crash. So, right. I mean, it was a bit of a Russian roulette for for him, but... If anyone should I I'm if anyone should know his place and use that to temper his aggression, it is Checo after the last 15 races. Like so much more so than George Russell. So so to that point, do you think this pretty much solidifies the end of of Perez with Red Bull and and I guess just to weigh that like add to that, you know, the fact that Horner and Marco were so supportive after the race, like isn't that almost a worse sign? Like they were so scrutinizing early on, and it, it sort of just feels like they're like, ah, you know, we're not going to pile on at this point because what's the Nothing point? Again. Yeah. Like, it's almost yeah. like when you stop getting the feedback is when you should start, like, worrying. Like, they've just given up on you at that point, and that's yep. kind of how it felt this weekend. Yep, radio silence is the, is the kiss of death. I think uh, I saw a meme on Twitter that was like a, a cheetah with its arm wrapped around a gazelle. Like, it was whispering to it kindly. And they they put it side by side with Horner wrapping his arm around Perez in the pit wall, and I was like, "Yeah, he's about to rip his throat out." Like it's, I I I think we're venturing into the they'd be dumb not to territory for replacing Perez because again, as previously discussed, what do they have to lose? Like it, no one would question it at this point. It's very easy to justify it from a PR standpoint. I'm sure they can afford it. Like it. You just got nothing to lose, man. Like you and yeah, I, I, I will now be personally surprised if they don't make a move. Um, but I think that just out of respect for Checo and like, look, he's been a good team player. They're gonna have won two straight constructors championships with him on the team. That is not something to sneeze at. He's won a lot of Grand Prix, and at times has been really critical teammate for Max. I mean, let's not forget. 2021 Abu Dhabi, like Max is not in Hamilton's pit window with an ability to win that race without what Checo did to back him up. So he deserves to be treated well on the way out if that's how they do it and drag him in the press would not be that. So, you know, if they let the season play out and do it quietly and respectfully, I think that would be the right way to do it. But I think it's more likely than not. Well, and they already get enough scrutiny for how they handle handle driver dynamics in general to at least handle this one gracefully, you know, is is a plus for them. So you're you're thinking that's Ricardo back back to uh back to Red Bull then. Or are you are you buying into the rumors of uh other other drivers the potentially dri- taking no. the sp- seat? The the driving style theory is being validated. If you want to criticize Ricardo for one thing is that his driving style is not adaptable. And it was a total nightmare in McLaren and it was oil and water. But if he can find a car that he can have a firm front end, he can let break late and throw it in terms turns with that. The race had a really good video on this this week where they described the difference in the turn approach and the V versus the U-shaped attack of the apex. And he's very much the V-shaped, wants a little more rear instability to feel like he can put it on the edge with a strong front end. That's, that's what Max likes. And so it's like, 
Dude, I think that they think, and I think the recent changes to the Alpha Tower have pushed that car more towards that sort of balance in the turns. I think that Horner knows that that is true of the Red Bull and has a hypothesis that it's just going to work better for him. And and so if they believe that, then they don't give a shit what happened at McLaren. And they ought to be willing to roll the dice. They know way better than anybody else. Like, driving style matters. And some drivers can adapt, and it doesn't matter. Like Norris. Like, there are just some guys that are just like Yoda behind the wheel, and they'll figure the car out and figure out how to be fast. He's not one of them, and that's a fair criticism. But he also, in the right car, is still capable of being very fast and very confident. So, like... I, I'm I'm calling it. I I'm I think it's gonna happen, man. And I think he's gonna be successful. Like he's not. I'm not predicting he's gonna beat Max, but like I think he will challenge and be a very very solid second place guy that is able to to beat the challengers immediately behind him. I do think it's kind of funny though, as we've as we've been so cued in on uh, or keyed in on AlphaTauri, like how lacking any like good comparison weekends have really existed right because you had a uh, an engine failure or this weekend it was well Sonoda starting from the back of the grid so you only got a q1 performance and then he's given ricardo a toe the rest and yet he has a great comeback drive but then you know you're only able to look at these kind of big moments like Sonoda blowing it on the pass on piastri that's enough of a sign but short of that there was all it seemed like there was a lot of these like extenuating circumstances where it was hard to get it has been hard to get really clean comparisons between Sonoda and Lawson and and Ricardo, but but again, I think the car worked this weekend, and Ricardo executed and and capitalized on it. And despite having to come back through the field, Sonoda was in a great spot and didn't. And you know, when it's hard to weigh things up, those those kind of data points factor in even even more i would think and so i think i think sonoda is kind of on the way out as well it seems like the rumor is potentially him to to aston as they partner with honda whether or not that's ever true because stroll might be there for life still who knows but um but it almost seems like he's a bit on the way on the way out as well and they're kind of done worrying about it in general as well so it'll be interesting i'm it seems like Lawson's got that seat for next year, so it'll be good to see a full year with it, him versus Sonoda. He deserves it. Yeah, he deserves it. And he earned it in his time, too. So, yeah, it'd be nice to see them kind of return to form because that race was crazy to see them up there really on merit. Um, who knows if that's just track-specific with the altitude and, like, a more efficient package, you know, engine performance overall. It'll be interesting to see if that carries through to Brazil and and who knows what Vegas is going to have in store for for all of the teams, but... They, they seem to take a step forward. Removing Perez is the linchpin to Red Bull learning a lot more about a lot of guys, including Lawson. And it's just like, so why would you wait? Why would you hold up that learning for a guy that, like, in a closer team battle, it might be the reason you don't win the constructors? Like, Well, and to that, closer constructor battles, how about a new team, a new constructor? In the last few weeks, some more news around the Andretti front. I guess you could say news, but also non-news at the same time. Like, you you hear whispers and there is controversy and conversations happening, but I don't know that anything has really, really changed. But I know you've done a little bit of research on this front. What's the What's the latest for the Andretti Cadillac Racing? 
Yeah, so there's two approvals that matter. The first is the regulatory body, which is the FIA, who evaluate uh, the financial solvency of the entity and also the technical ability for that entity to compete, um, which involves you know research into their engineering prowess and their ability to invest in facilities and where their IP would stand, and that includes the engine. Um, and uh, Andretti is the only team that passed that bar. And then the second approval that matters is, of course, the commercial rights that are owned by Liberty, which involve making sure that Andretti doesn't dilute the collective pie of the F1 race teams. Uh, you know, they roughly get about a billion dollars of payout annually to the constructors in F1 that comes from the media rights that Liberty sells on behalf of the teams. And uh, that's a finite amount that is spread across a, a discrete number of teams. And so the theory is that if you increase that from 10 to 11, um, the pie stays the same and everybody's share gets smaller. And so they have this anti-dilution provision, which is $200 million essentially for any team to come in that they pay to compensate for the fact that they're going to take a share of the pie uh, from the rest of the team in terms of the share of the media right revenue. Um, and so now you have this dynamic where essentially the incentives of the teams who are already on the grid who have to approve the addition of Andretti are not necessarily aligned to Andretti. And so I think the situation is now this very political kind of closed door meeting, lobbying campaign where money's exchanging hands and people have to get confidence that Andretti as a team rises the total tide of profitability for F1 in a way that actually will benefit everybody in the long run. And that's just not a slam dunk argument for every team, you know? Uh, I'm sure Ferrari, because of the power of their brand, probably doesn't feel like they need Andretti to make more money. They're Ferrari, right? So um, that's the holdup. And uh, I don't know if you have a good sense of the probability of it being approved, but currently what I'm seeing is like, it is certainly not a done deal um, because I think a lot of teams in F1 have a, an issue with the fact that they feel like a $200 million anti-dilution clause is not enough. Um, and, uh, you know, when that's the, the, the point of contention, uh, it definitely hangs in the balance. There are no guarantees is my read. I think this is, this is a fascinating like, case study in, in contract negotiation, right? Because there's multiple elements that just seem odd to me, right? One being, okay, so you're saying that there's two levels of approval, but, but Suleiman from the FIA basically says, well, what is the commercial rights like? approval really mean like we can we say there's an 11th team on the grid there's an 11th team on the grid how they choose to do broadcasts and and potentially there's talk of like well could you basically exclude them from ever like showing up on tv which i guess you could but what happens when they're in like a close battle and or they're in the front even like so it's like how enforceable is like your like your half of the approvals doesn't matter if they're on camera. If they're not a part of the 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 media agree, like the agreement, um, the Concord agreement, they're not going to get any revenue. They from... can't get they can't get paid, right? Which is just like okay, so why would Andretti sign up for that? Like they're going to work their ass off and maybe get like top five their first year as a constructor and then get jack shit for it. Like they they can't operate that way. Yeah, so it's almost like pointless for for Andretti then. And then the second one to me is is just still the the anti dilution amount. Like why? why that was ever a fixed dollar amount to begin with. Especially if you have like growth aspirate, like you're in a sport where you have growth aspirations, how you don't tie that to like a more dynamic 
valuation of the sport or, or whatever, like collective annual payout you're expecting. Like that just seems odd to me as well, that you're either looking at or aspiring for rapid growth and then not financially protecting yourself. And in the case in which that growth occurs, I mean, I think we've both seen instances where companies, for example, not expecting the upper end of growth and sort of getting screwed on that side as well, because you didn't like sort of invest and prepare accordingly. So that's just an, another weird term yeah, to me. Why Why is the federal minimum wage not indexed to inflation? Why is that fixed? Same reason. Not everybody wants the the rate to increase. You know, one could argue that Liberty Media actually has an incentive to not have a high anti-dilution clause because they're a media company. They have to believe that increasing OEM participation increases the value of their media asset, but they have a set of teams that are incentivized not to believe that. And so, you know, but, but their position. So if you're, if you're Ferrari or Red Bull, you should absolutely fight for that anti-delusion clause to be indexed to some measure of the valuation of the total sport. I think it's debatable how you do that objectively on an annual basis, but like, you know, because, you know, F1's not a, F, the F1 entity in of itself is not a public entity that has like some free market behind it to value it fairly. But like, uh, yeah, I mean, I would argue that like Liberty's incentive is actually to keep that fixed because technically, you know, over periods of time, it lowers the barrier of entry for new teams to get in. I also got to be honest, I'm, I'm tired of like certain commentators that are within the grid already making this feel and seem like it's an unprecedented thing for an 11th team to enter the grid. Like it's some like fucking boundary. Like, like we're going to pack the Supreme court. Like that we're just crossing this Rubicon that hasn't been crossed. Yeah, before. Wasn't it wasn't like 2016. Had, that was dude, we had 20, 22 cars on the grid in 2016. Yeah. So it's like, I, this is like very normal. Like if you look at the arc of formula one history, like the ebb and flow of the number of cars in the grid has rarely sat on 20, you know, like there were some seasons back in like the eighties where like a team would get on the grid, but then they would run out of money and just like not show up for two races. And then they would come back, you know, <laughs> like this is like not controversial, you know, it's just like, can they pay for it or not? Like, it's pretty simple. Well, and I get the, the appeal of having a kind of another manufacturing, but I don't totally disagree with the teams either at this point of, especially as we covered last episode, sort of the, the the peak of American viewership being sort of reached and potentially at the point of saturation already. Like, yeah, if this was three years ago, it seems like, yeah, wow, okay, we're on the upswing still and like this could further accelerate it. I don't see Team Andretti and like Herda joining a team being the thing that sort of causes an inflection back to a growing U.S. market. Maybe I'm wrong, win. but- Got to win. You got to at least that, perform, do well. And I think at the end of the day, it's still about the competitiveness of the sport and and nailing how you broadcast the sport as well. Yes, yes. And I, and I think another way of saying that is if you want to be successful as an American team on the grid in terms of actually galvanizing an American audience, you, you have to embrace the ethos of American racing in the way that you market your team. Haas has done literally the exact epping opposite of that. Like they literally had a Russian oil oligarch as their lead sponsor like a year and a half ago. Like 
They cared nothing about embracing the ethos of American racing culture. And there is substantial American racing culture and identity that you could tap into. Um, and and it's just like, I, so they could do it. I, I, I think Andretti could do it if they approach it the right way, but you cannot suck for long and you've got to embrace the personality of American racing. Like, What, and what that does that mean? mean? What does that entail? Dude, I mean, other than not siding with like geopolitical adversaries. I mean, I mean, you got to overtly put that livery, like put a fucking bald eagle on the front wing. Like, I mean, like it's got to be like a loud and proud baby, like guns and roses type stuff. You got to you got to put at least one cowboy AR-15 yeah. right on the side <laughs> of that bad boy. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You, yeah, that thing needs to have like spikes that'll shoot out the back. You know, it needs to, yeah, be like James Bond equipped. And then you you need at least one cowboy in as one of the drivers. And maybe it's Herta, maybe it's somebody else, but you need a cowboy who's going to come in and just like, you know, freaking chew tobacco in the in the paddock. Well, like, once Ricardo gets booted from from Red Bull, dude, he'll, he you should think- line up. You think the Mexican fans go crazy for freaking Checo? Can you imagine what the fans in Austin would do if we had a freaking tobacco spit? Like Tony Stewart was like some fat freaking redneck American just like twerking on people in qualifying in Austin, getting out of the car, throwing a cowboy hat on, kissing a freaking fat chick and like chugging a jug of milk. Chugging like he's a at Mountain Dew. Brick- yeah, like he's at the Brickyard. Dude, people would lose it. Like – You've it, like that is the so you're talking about the American fan base like tapering off. It's because they haven't really stolen any current viewership of the existing American racing fandom. They've all they've it's all net new. They've not stolen anybody from any car. They've not stolen anybody from NASCAR. But if you can tap in to that like country racing culture of NASCAR and figure out how to bridge it to just a freaking Dirt under your fingernails, American F1 team, like big middle finger to pretentious European racing culture. Dude, you could make a shit ton of money. And I tell you right now, Gerald, I will have a fucking closet full of their merch. I mean, a closet full of it. <laughs> like, get a Slim Jim sponsorship, man. <laughs> like... <laughs> It's got the Jack Lynx sauce yes. Sasquatch. Feed your wild side, baby. Like I <laughs> That's what I want, Gerald. I want it so bad. And Haas has failed every question on that test, in my view. And I'm done with him. Out with him. I don't give I don't care what happens to him. Man, you really you've been having some fever dreams about this Andretti race team. God damn. I don't care if it's I don't care if it's Andretti. I just want someone. You just want the true only- Americana. The o- yes, which the apparently only just- in your mind is obesity and milk and freaking Chick Fil A, highly I- processed dried meats. <laughs> I the only thing that is a bit of a downer in the current organization, Andretti, is Cadillac is just a marketing sponsor, right? Like they're not actually bringing an OEM to the table, so far as I can tell, which is going to work against them. So if they're going to come in and put a Renault engine in that thing, like they're DOA, you know, like they, so uh, you know. Well, and then the other question mark is that it still doesn't even sound like there's a definitive answer on whether or not they're joining in 25 or 26. And there's sort of some some interesting like pros, cons there. Um, you know, do you wait for the the regulation changes and just jump in right there and kind of be in the year one with everybody else? Or do you actually take a year just to get your feet under you and and kind of 
get an understanding for the rhythm of the business and and managing weekends. I don't know. Do you do you have any thoughts on you know is it better to start early and and get your feet under you or kind of just wait and and for a massive like kind of new regime? Uh, I I don't know. Um, I, to me, it just comes down to like which side of the technical regulation change do you think you need to be on. And if the change in 2026 is as substantial as we think it is, then I would say just wait. Like, why why come futz around in 2025 with a car design that's not going to carry over and invest a bunch of resources and time? And, you know, you might as well I guess you could say because slate. the aero philosophy is not going to really change, though. And I feel like that's where it might be better to get your feet under you versus are you is it more in like the engine components? And that's going to change. Regardless, I guess it's just a matter of how much capital do you have to invest and and go towards kind of one direction from the whole PU component. But to your point, if they're not really having an engine supplier partner, you're just buying that off the shelf anyway. So that's where I would argue you probably start as early as you can. But man, they are not they are not far away from season 2025 starting. And so you got to get a hell of a lot of stuff in place very, very quickly. So it might just be a a feasibility consideration more than and than anything, especially as this whole approval thing just drags on and on and on. Yeah, and what's one year in the grand scheme of things, right? They're viewing it as a 10-year, 15-year investment in the sport, and yeah, what's a year? You know, who cares? It's like splitting hairs. Yeah, exactly. Well, it'll be interesting to see much more to come on that front. I don't really have much of a conversation on this on this topic, but I got to just say, I think there's been some really positive elements of like the broadcast from an F1, like F1 TV perspective. I know I was going to say maybe I wasn't going to wait here, but I just got to give, we, we just talk a lot of shit here and are just very pessimistic and denigrating, but I think they, they've actually done a really good job in terms of how they produce the product. And I think there's, as we've talked at different points, a lot of additional information and elements they could add. But I think like some of the things that has stood out to me is I feel like their whole content strategy is basically just Sam Collins, right? Like anything outside of just broadcasting what's on track at any given moment is Sam Collins. And I think the qualifying segments that they've done with him, while it's super rudimentary for like seasoned fans, I think they've done a really good job of like in between each session you know, having like a very rudimentary education and between Q1 and Q2 and then Q2 to Q3 is like more of like the 200 level course where he's talking about, you know, maybe on track positioning and, and doing all of that. And I do think then like the rotation of Coulthard, Palmer, Hinchcliffe, when he's on, they're in the Western hemisphere is like a good mixture of, of voices. Um, and generally I think the production on track has been pretty good. Although there's been some different races, I think like Singapore, for example, where some stuff they have just not covered at all, right? Like the whole Perez and Albon incident, like I don't think was broadcast until way, way later or even after the fact. I will say, I think they're missing some good data still on like available tires and tire ages during the race. I still wish they would bring back the thermal cameras on the tires, but that's just me. Um, but I will say like, again, Sam Collins during the red flag period did a really good job of breaking down like who had what tires available, how old those tires were. And therefore like why, which driver was starting on which tire. And, and I think it's just those kinds of things where you bring all of this, like kind of hidden information to the surface for the, for the fans to see. Um, 
is really positive. So I, I think they've done a good job on on that front. Anything else you would either praise or, or you'd want to add to the their kind of content strategy? Look at Mr. Doom and Gloom over here, giving some props, giving some shine to Sky Sports. Never thought I'd see the day. Couldn't agree with you more on most of that. But the one oh, thing it's not I Sky though. Just... This is this is F1 TV Pro, well, as you like yeah, to yeah, yeah. as well, you like to say. But they're employees of Sky, are they not? No, they're not. No, oh, that's the right. that's totally no, different. No, no, there's no. no praise for F Scott. Yeah. All right. So yeah, no. Uh, I'm with you though on all the. <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth here. I look. I never will go back to the Scott. Now that I'm on, yeah, I converted. Now that you have, F1 now TV that Pro. wait, why won't you go back? Now that you have what? F1 TV Pro. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know you had that. No free. You ads. haven't made it very. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, 15 races ago, fully converted. I use multi-viewer now. I'll never go back. It's phenomenal. Uh, but where I will disagree with you is lean is thinking that the way to increase the appeal is to lean into the visualization of data in the broadcast. I propose this to you. What I want to see as an option, not a full, that is not the only pillar of my strategy, but carry forward, carry on. What, what I want to see is the Manning cast equivalent mm, of F1. Okay. Which is I or or what like Pat McAfee does on the college football broadcasts, which is just get a bunch of funny people, some of them may have experience from the sport, who can come in and live react and talk shit about drivers who suck and provide insight about drivers who are doing well. Coulthard does it sometimes. Like and and he'll say like brash stuff that's almost like it's so mean, it's funny. Well, and that's what Palmer does a lot, but I think he's almost getting pushed out slowly because of, of that. Like, there's a lot of things where he'll kind of shit on the FIA or like... They got to lean into that. Exactly. It People buy candor. People want, like, people are, are, are perceptive of feeling like they just have talking heads, feeding them freaking lines that are written by, like, some professional writer, like... I, that is why the main cast has thrived so much on the Monday Night Football broadcast because it's just like they say whatever they want. They're insightful, but they're funny and they're freaking candid. They just talk like you would envision your buddy talking to you in a living room. And it doesn't have to be this beautifully produced dialogue. And it's it like, seems like dude, that's just, what they want from the international F1 broadcast. And so it it either needs to be a third party or they need to like have a, like a secondary, secondary group. That's like part of their overall, like umbrella. I'd love to see them try. Because I think to your point of keeping like the American audience engaged as well. Again, I think that is kind of, I would say the American like viewership culture goes beyond milk and beef jerky. And and it's more of those, like the candor that you just talked about, right? The humor, the candor, and really laying into those things. And, and I would agree with you. Somebody told me, so a uh, couple people I work with, or not I work with, but people I know from work, one of them chatted me on Teams today. And it was a picture of the two of them standing with Gunther Steiner. Like, they just took a picture with Gunther Steiner, and I was like, oh, my God, where is that? And they were like, we ran into him at Logan Airport. Like, in the lounge, they ran into Gunther Steiner. And um, one of the guys that was in the picture, who was an employee of our company, uh, is a managing director. They just announced his retirement. And so he's on the way out. And I sent the photo to Josh because I thought he would laugh. And Josh was like, 
look at that. Two guys in the same photo who are both on their way out, like referring to this guy at our company and then Gunther. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be perfect for Gunther Steiner to be on a candid broadcast where he can just talk about like whatever he wants during a race and comment from the perspective of a team principal? Because they have broadcasters with the driver perspective, albeit somewhat outdated for certain drivers like Coulthard. How cool would it be if you had a team principal in the booth? A former team principal. Get Otmar up there. You know, he's a little flat. He's not the most entertaining no. guy. Fuck but, no, dude. He, okay, you're, you're going the that, wrong. I, I, I'll pull that back. Boy, I'll pull he that starts back. busting out his, like, Rosetta Stone I'll, French. Yeah, uh, but not, okay, so the last two terminated team principals in Otmar and Bonato, probably bad idea. You don't want to get those guys up in the booth. But at some point, you're going to get some more turnover and get somebody who would be entertaining. Let him go unhinged. Don't filter him at all. Don't bleep any cuss words. Don't write him a script. Just let him go. I would pay double my subscription fee to F1 TV Pro to watch that. And I don't disagree, but it does feel like they're almost mo- like that's been my favorite thing about Palmer is he almost has like a bitterness for not being as successful in F1 as he wanted to be. But I'm like, they're fighting it. But it's like, hell yeah. Like he just kind of throws out some daggers and then, um, you know, his co-host will kind of shit on him a little bit for like never having won a race. And like that banter back and forth is awesome. And and I, I love that. And and they should lean more into that, but I, I do worry they're they're going the other the other way a little bit. So we'll we'll see. It's an we'll entertainment see. product, dude. It's an entertainment product. Exactly. You know. Well, we'll we'll see how that evolves. Well, I think we touched on a lot of the big stuff. I mean, we can talk a little bit about the teams. We've covered off Red Bull. Max continues to make things look effortless. I mean, passing one driver per lap when he comes out of his his pit. I mean, just a machine still. I mean, what was it under the he still came out, like pitted and came out. Was it the safety car or before the red flag got waved and was like still in first? So, I mean, just totally bulletproof. We talked about Perez. Um, let's talk about Mercedes for a moment. We talked a bit around their Austin performance, but after a, another solid weekend, I mean, they kind of split the Ferraris, right? One ahead, one behind. Um, they're 22 points clear of Ferrari with three races left to go. Brazil, Vegas, Abu Dhabi. I don't know. Do you have a lean one way or the other? My thoughts are, I think Mercedes probably does better in Brazil and Abu Dhabi and maybe Ferrari does better in, in Vegas. Um, which means I think probably Mercedes stays out ahead unless, unless they fumble the ball pretty badly. But Uh, how about you? Mercedes wins it, uh, between those two and Hamilton is second in the drivers. I feel. Mm, You're still going Hamilton 20 points behind Perez. Dude, he was, he was 40 points behind last week and should have been less because he got the freaking plank, you know, thing on him. So yeah, yeah, I did three races for Perez to DNF and do something else stupid, given the trend he's on and Hamilton just keep cashing in these second places. I, I don't find, I don't find it hard to believe at all. Meanwhile, Russell, Especially in Brazil, I mean, yeah. Brazil's Hamilton is a assassin at Brazil. I mean, Brazil, Abu Dhabi again, uh, Perez's best chances is, is Vegas potentially, but two to one, he kind of just has to do damage limitation at this point. So like the mindset he should have had for Mexico, he needs to have for the last three races and we'll see if he does or not. Meanwhile, Russell currently eighth. I mean, a far cry from Hamilton in third, 15 points behind Leclerc. And admittedly, I think just kind of continues to show the lack of form relative to Hamilton as of late. Um, and really personally, I feel continue to feel vindicated for my Qatar perspective that 
Russell should have respected his superior teammate and um, and let him through cleanly. But, you know, youngsters, they'll do what they do. It, it'll swing back. He The new floor clearly suits Hamilton better. I don't think Russell's the kind of guy you should be counting out. I get you want to you want to dunk, you want to make your dunk because you have the opportunity to so so. Go ahead, but but to be fair, Russell wasn't caught cheating, so you know it's uh, <laughs> it's a little bit of a toss up there. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. All I right, mean, so you're calling you're calling Mercedes hold second and constructors Hamilton to second, Perez to third in drivers. I'd back you on that. I'd back you on that bet. Meanwhile, Ferrari continues to look strong. Great qualifying performances on pole, back to back, but kind of characteristic for the car. Continues to slide back in the race. Presumably higher tire deg. In the spirit of giving shine to people that deserve it and not being all doom and gloom, I do have to compliment Ferrari on seeming to have. I mean, when's the last major strategy gaffe that they've had? Well, it is funny that you bring that up because you could argue. Austin was really the biggest gap with Leclerc and the one-stop strategy. But what I will yeah. say is that was a a pre-race strategy gaffe. And so there was data issues, whatever, but like that was not in the moment, dis- lack of decisiveness, which was much more of our criticism over the last couple of years. And so, yeah, I mean, credit to them. They seem relatively flawless. It's just, they're coming at the race race weekend from the opposite end that Mercedes is. And unfortunately the qualifying over race pace has not really paid off over the long, over the long haul. Maybe Fred's Fred's getting, getting the operations in order. Sure enough. Maybe just, just maybe I it, I'm not ready to call it, but I just, it's notable, notable. They need that soft and steady hand of a seasoned Frenchman steering that uh, Italian behemoth. Meanwhile, McLaren continues to be resurgent. I mean, they seem to be in the top of top forms, especially with Norris. I mean, finishing finishing where he did, um, both drivers looking strong in Mexico. Unfortunately, in, in Austin, while Norris looked great as well, Piastri got tangled up with Ocon. Look, maybe Piastri was a little bit aggressive, but clearly Ocon drifted wide in that corner, sent them both into a, an early retirement. Um but again, that team is is looking super strong, and and over the last couple of races, they are now twenty points ahead of Aston Martin in fourth in the constructors. So that has happened. And and speaking of Aston Martin now in fifth, I mean that has just been a total and utter collapse. I mean they've even reverted to older older specs. I mean. Can it get much worse? And, and I guess where did it all go so wrong? Because it seemed like they had such the right vision early on in the car design, but then after they got like the baseline right, it's almost like they haven't known where to go from there. I mean, so was this a, a situation of them bringing somebody who kind of had the answer key, but maybe didn't actually have the depth of understanding to sort of drive it past? The the copying, or would you chalk it up to something else? You talking about the head of Arrow? They brought yeah. it from, from yeah. Red Bull. I mean, maybe it's a it's a decent theory. I mean, I've just given how fickle car performance has been team to team. You kind of it's just like yeah, okay, maybe they just got it wrong. Like I mean, I you know, like it's going to take them time to undo it. Um, 
but yeah, maybe maybe he did come over with the answer key, and then they struggled to figure out how to evolve the car. I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm genuinely perplexed by it. But I mean, what does it net out to at the end of the day? It nets out to Aston finishing in about the place we expect him to finish. Yeah, like, which is like one up on where we thought. Why all the there was a lot of drama for <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just like we got to the same place, but just with different route. But like same place so yep well it's kind of funny i was just watching something about you know it was aaron Rodgers on the pat mcafee show and he's like yeah dude the wins can look ugly but at the end of the day it's you know they just look at the record you don't see you don't see the drama that was in between like nobody's gonna remember aston martin as they were in second place for a little bit of the season like now nah, they were they went from seventh to fifth pretty good year like so you're an you're an avid viewer of the Aaron Rodgers Tuesday. Oh, I'm as well. I am a religious. I I'm, am a religious I'm, watcher. Yeah, I've glued. I've glued to it, man. There's always some good nuggets there. I, uh, you know, I, I like. I like that he's back in Zach Wilson. You know, I. You know, it's like he's he's being a team player. I think he's going to be back not this year, but like. Well, let's uh, be honest. That's like Alonzo backing Stroll. I mean, zero. Dude, there is zero me, reputational risk in doing that. Speaking of candor, you know, like I think maybe it was last Tuesday's call. The freaking Pat or one of the boys asked him, like, yeah, what do you think about Motor City Dan? You know, how do you think? What do you think about the Lions and like Dan Campbell and like the vibe they got going? And Aaron was like, hey, I gotta be honest, when he got the job, he rubbed me the wrong way because he burned a couple people and there was some wrong stuff. So he's like, yeah, he's like, I didn't really like him. I thought he was an ass. And then he was like, he seems to have done a great job and I've changed my mind. You know, he gave like a very like direct, honest answer. He's like, there's a lot of people that aren't willing to just say like, I didn't like that guy and I've changed my mind. You know, you just don't hear that often, you know? Uh, sorry, this is a rabbit hole, but like, <laughs> I'm also a fan of Aaron Rodgers Tuesdays and candor sells. <laughs> well, me, the sad thing is me and, and so Dip, does Ayahuasca. You know, Dip's a, Dip's a Jets fan and I'm a, I'm a Packers fan. And so we had this like great oh, like bonding. I know, poor guy. Sounds right for a guy named Dip. <laughs> <laughs> but we had like this great bonding and then it was like, well, now we're just both like, pissed off all the time <laughs> like both teams yeah. suck so i mean the packers certainly really suck, suck. Than the jets yeah yeah no the, i don't i'm not sure that the jets suck i think they're actually pretty decent i mean they're they just need a, they need a quarterback <laughs> they just need their quarterback away like the definition of a quarterback away they're two-thirds of a quarterback away now. I, I i was i was hoping they would trade for kirk cousins but that that ship has unfortunately sailed yeah that, how horrible would that have been it's like they trade for him and get another <laughs> first drive Oh God, Dip would have jumped. I'd be like putting guys on the cover of Madden, man. <laughs> just, a, just a freaking curse. Uh, <laughs> next, next calls to Jameis Winston. He's like, Nah, man. I think I'm gonna. I'm gonna sit this one out. Hang out. <laughs> oh well. So we've talked about Aston Martin. Their their colossal collapse. Meanwhile, AlphaTauri they've kind of lived at the bottom of the barrel most of the season. But then the man Daniel Ricardo coming in hot, putting points on the board. Now they are tied. Alfa Romeo, 16 points, 12 behind Williams, which given Albon's form, that seems out of reach. But given the total lack of presence of Alfa Romeo, Alphatari has a good shot of, of kind of sealing that, sealing that position, which is not where we had them six races ago. You do me a favor and remind me um, where – this puts Daniel Ricardo in the driver standings relative to Yuki Tsunoda. Could you just, <laughs> could you just remind the audience where that stands after this weekend? 
Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't seem to have the information. My, readily, that's mighty convenient. <laughs> readily available now that you. Yeah, it's funny because I think I do. Well, I, uh, if I have to say, I will. I believe Yuki Sonoda is still two points ahead of Daniel Ricardo, eight versus six. So somebody didn't check the notes before they got on their high horse. Well, congratulations to a man who has raced the entire season against a man who has raced literally four weekends. So. Well, I mean, he could have raced more if he didn't crash into Again, a wall and break his wrist, win. but, you know. Okay. What was our original bet when Ricardo got the seat? It was based on qualifying. But if Ricardo beats him in the driver's standings, I am totally vindicated. Completely vindicated. I don't care what happens in qualifying. If Ricardo beats Sonoda in the only in the small number of races he has in the driver's standings. But at the same time, points, at the same time that's kind of like bullshit because it's like, well, if somebody else came in at the end like you look at Aston and how much they've swung it's in a season. It's seizing an opportunity, Gerald. It's called <laughs> seizing an opportunity. It's not bullshit. I mean, to be fair, Sonoda could have had another what, 3 points on Ricardo still if he hadn't freaking crashed. So or spun out, I guess more like. So, no, you're right. If if um if Ricardo finishes ahead of Sonoda, you are fully vindicated. I will put an asterisk next to qualifying as well, given Sonoda had to get uh, get Ricardo into Q3. But I feel like neither here nor there. Sit in a Waffle House for 24 hours as punishment, <laughs> or like, you know, sit on a college campus with an Ask Me Anything sign in front of the table, or something stupid like that. Oh God, I'm sure we can come up with better things, but yeah, I, yeah. What of, of points finishing? Like who finishes ahead in the standings? You 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 need. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make you go to UC Boulder and sit in the middle of campus on a sunny day with the table and a banner in front of it that says "Healthcare is not a right." <laughs> like I change my ask mind. Me, ask me. <laughs> I change my mind. <laughs> yeah, let's do that after. And this. I'm just gonna record it. <laughs> I would support that. I think we can. I think we can make some periphery content, and we're gonna live feed it to me and Ted. <laughs> Ted would just be fuming, dude. Ted would literally be mic'd like in with like his arguments. Put me, put me on speaker. Put, me <laughs> on put speaker. this man in his place. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Ah, uh, anywho, um, you know, and beyond that, I think I have to say, you know. Alpha Tari or Alpha Romeo continues to be the most invisible team on the grid. They even got two cars into Q3 this race. Fucking invisible. Sorry, you're talking about Alpha Romeo. Yes, Alpha Alpha Romeo. They just are. They're so invisible you couldn't remember their name. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We basically already have nine teams on the grid, so we need Andretti just to get back up to 10. It's. What what do you think Andreas uh, um, Seidel has been working on? What do you think he's been doing this year? Is he on Garden Leaf still? What's he been up to? I don't know, man, but they they are invisible. I mean, there was a point on the grid during the race where you could look at like five drivers in a row, and it was like Stroll, it was like Botas, Stroll, Joe, Sargent, like all in a row, and it was basically me and Dipper talking. It was like, yeah, those five, like those five could go, and the sport would not lose anything. And it seems like both alpha drivers are are kind of in that in that camp. Meanwhile, Haas is only the second most invisible team on the grid because they tend to have some sort of catastrophic car failure or crash. So at least they get some, at least they get some screen time there, but they're, they're in a bit of a similar boat. 
Magnuson whipped it pretty hard. It was suspension failure, right? Yeah. Is that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, nothing you can do about it. He got it. a little he, bit. He, but when it first happened, I was like, oh, boy. Magnuson doing Magnuson things. But I guess he was vindicated. So we'll, we'll he, give him a pass was, this weekend. Pretty good. We hadn't seen a tank slapper like that in quite a few weeks. He looked a little he, shook he, up as a, you know, he yeah. was shaking off his hands. I mean, it seems he avoided a that hand car, injury like, you know, most drivers do when they tore, crash. Car but, was tore up. You know, like any good, like any competent driver would. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Wait, we're really gonna go back to this? Like, I, I, I don't, don't make me. Do I'm, I'm reeling here, really. Graham. I'm on my back foot. This is all I got. I'm grasping, I'm grasping at straws. And I love it. I just want to watch you squirm, man. I'm gonna just get that hourglass out and focus as much sunlight on you as I possibly. Well, can. you're lucky we didn't have an episode after Austin because fucking Ricardo is sitting back there, picking up, picking up rocks off the back of the track. Yeah, what was he gonna do? I mean, come on. It was like his flu game, you know? Hand was probably still sore. Mm. Just didn't seem to bother Stroll that much, but, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, because he's really <laughs> like the world on fire this year. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, healthy. he should have broken more bones. But that was his best. Jeez, he, he, ought to, he ought to do every race with a neck brace at that rate. <laughs> <laughs> at least healthy he got sympathy Stroll's points, not really, if nothing else. Uh, if not real geez. points. Yeah, I could still maybe get some chicks. I don't know. Oh, man. Well, we got Brazil coming up. Final race in this triple header. You got any prognostications? Last year we had a a shock Magnuson appearance, um, performing really well. Hamilton storming back through the field. Any expectations for this time around? I, I, I mean, I I think that the obvious take is that Hamilton's going to go really well. Um, I think Norris is going to go really well. Um, Brazil's just got great track, man. It has everything. It's very racy. It's the right combination of turns and opportunity to overtake. And um, yeah, it's it's just usually a great freaking race. Um, the only downside, if there is one, is just that the start is usually pretty uneventful just because the rundown to turn one is pretty short. Um, so qualifying matters a lot, uh, I guess, is the takeaway there. Um, but I mean... I'm. I always look forward to Brazil, and and honestly, you know, go back to our sim careers here. You know, when I got introduced to the smart steering wheel on Gran Turismo, Brazil was the first F1 track I ever ever drove in the virtual world, and it still holds a very near and dear place to my heart. So uh, I'm excited. Those green and yellow curbs, man, nothing like them. Can't beat them, man. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful story. Truly, love it. All right, man. We'll see you on the other side of that one. All right, looking forward to it. Peace. Peace. Three lights, four lights, five laps. Pause. Go, go, go. He has been told to come in lap after lap after lap. And what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it. Stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it. Get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to